0: Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club, guest author of the month. Born in 1868, Aline Isabel Cust, the invincible Miss Cust, went on to become Britain and Ireland's first ever female vet. Well, with her family, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, society in general, not to mention the Queen, dead set against it, she had to move mountains and develop an extraordinarily thick and resilient skin to achieve her dream but what a journey. Born in Ireland to an aristocratic English family, Miss Cust eventually managed to study at the new veterinary college in Edinburgh. She practiced in Ireland and even played her part tending to thousands of horses in the First World War. It's a story that completely captivated the author of The Invincible Miss Cust, Penny Hall, who explains first how
1: growing up she too had wanted to be a vet. So growing up I'm on a farm in KwaZulu-Natal, a dairy farm, with animals around me all the time, and I guess a, a very fertile imagination, I thought, well, I'll be the veterinary surgeon that rescues all the animals and finds favor with all the farmers and what have you and I so I I would ride my horse I would go walking with the dogs and I would tell myself stories about Penny the vet and so it was it's almost as if I've come full circle in a sense yeah, pretending to be a vet so I guess the problem with that was that it was too much of a fantasy and I didn't pursue the science route firmly enough at school. And then my natural inclination was for creative writing and for for English and what have you. So then I decided I would follow that and be a journalist. But the storytelling was always there. And I imagined even at that young age, one day writing a book, I'm not sure that then I was thinking about writing a book about a vet but I certainly the stories about me being a vet Penny the vet was very much part of my imagination <laughs> but that's really interesting not just that you, the fact of you wanting to be a
0: vet but also because that you grew up on a farm with cows and animals and walking with your dogs and I'm feeling Cuss in the background there so you had quite a lot of innate experience even though not directly not scientifically but you had yeah. that sort of experience so you parked the being a vet thing and you went into writing, and you went into writing in a sort of fairly journalistic way, and I think it's 30-odd years in the the journalism business, but there was a point when you thought, "I, I really do have to write a book, and then we went
1: back to your growing up days. Tell us about that. Was, um, so I'd, I'd always threatened, one day I'm going to write a book, one day I'm going to write a book, and it was actually my son who said to me, well when are you going to write this book? <laughs> and I was quite fearful of it to be honest. I guess you get quite comfortable with being a journalist and then you think about writing a book, somehow it makes you more vulnerable, maybe that long form. It's almost as if you telling your own story more than you are as a journalist obviously.
0: Nowhere to hide.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly and so Sebastian my son said to me well why don't you start off with a story about Nico which was a story that I'd grown up with. It was a story my grandmother told me about her time with the fervid monkey and I told him and so it was a story that was already in my head and he said to me it's a great story write it for children so I thought that would be a great way to start and at that point, I was still working full time as a journalist, so it was my after-hours thing, and I felt terribly guilty about doing it because, you know, you couldn't send an invoice for that. But I had such fun, and I remembered how much I loved being more creative in my in my storytelling and, and in my writing. And it was really, um, as I've said to you before, it was my gateway book. When after I'd done that, I thought, no, this is wonderful, and. It reminded me of that playfulness that i 'd had as a child walking around imagining all these things and creating scenes and characters and and I wanted to do more of it. It, it it really reminded me what drew me to the storytelling, not necessarily the writing and the reporting, but the the storytelling and I actually kind of came full circle and thought now i want to I want to be creative and the the, the freedom of making things up in a sense and making, ca- making up characters and that. I mean, it, for a while it, I felt guilty about how much fun I was having, but really it was just delightful. <laughs> so that was where the change happened. Yeah. And what happened to the fear factor of writing a book? Because although it, th- nowhere to
0: hide in writing a book, here in a way you did have somewhere to hide because it was a story you already knew, and it was for young people, for children, so it wasn't quite as <gasps> scary yeah.
1: perhaps. Yeah. yeah, that for sure. Certainly children can be quite brutal but it wasn't as scary as thinking okay must I look at these reviews and what uh, you know what have I what have I said here that might be wrong or right or whatever so it, it was definitely um, an easy route into writing a book but the fear's still there now I have to say I I'm still equal parts excited and terrified every time I think of someone reading any of my books. Perhaps that's not a bad thing. You know, if you get too comfortable and sort of too relaxed into it, you know, there's
0: never going to be the challenge. Yeah. Nonetheless, after Nico, there was some time before you embarked, you know, into another novel, The Wilderness Between Us, which was very much a little bit more scary. Do you want to just tell us what the trigger was and, and very loosely the story?
1: What actually happened was there was another manuscript between that one and Neko. And I actually... After, after Nickel was published, I was approached by some writers in Heart Bay and they said, don't you want to join a writers group? And we're, we're a bunch of writers and we're going to crit each other's work and workshop meets, meet twice a month and you need to be working on something and then um, we take turns in submitting and you essentially read each other's work and make comments on characters and development and um, all these kind of things and I thought, oh, that that would be a nice thing to do but I wasn't working on anything else at that point I I hadn't actually hadn't really thought about what I was going to do then I was still working so I thought I'll I'll join and and I started to write something else and I actually wrote a story also based in KwaZulu Natal but contemporary fiction about a woman in the Unkumas Valley and in fact two women and and about the Buddhist retreat near which is near where I grew up. And I I worked on that with my writing group and, and really enjoyed the process. And honestly, it was because of the writing group that I continued writing it because I needed to submit. And when I came to the end of that, I pitched it to some publishers here in South Africa, and it was Bridget Impey of Jakana who said to me, don't waste your time with this story in South Africa. Find yourself an international agent. And see if you can sell it abroad. There's just too small a market in this country for that kind of story. So that's what I did. And I found an agent in the US, relatively easy, which was maybe a a bit of a false start for me in a sense that that it was so easy. And she absolutely loved that story. And we did a little bit of work on it. And she started to submit it to editors. And I was very excited. I thought, oh, I'm on the road. And she put it, in front of some really amazing editors with, the, with, with big publishers I was very excited by that and they all said very nice things but the end word was no and so oh. <laughs> so um, in the meantime she said to me you need to start working on something else because that's the whole thing it's like don't Obsess about the one that is out there because because these things take so long as well. So we discussed a couple of ideas, and that was where the story about the hike and the Tsitsikama came about. And that was when I started to write about the hike and the Tsitsikama. And so the Wilderness Between Us kind of grew while I was waiting for the other one, which actually never found a home. And when I'd finished The Wilderness Between Us and I sent it to my agent, my agent said, the agent who I'd worked with on it, um, who had, we had. Agreed that this is the kind of story that she said, Nah, don't think this one's gonna work. So <laughs> I was, oh, <owed>. okay. <laughs> um, she's like, No, try something else, which is how it happens. But uh, I found a, another publisher, one that doesn't go through an agent, that was Cola Books, who published it. And during that time, I came across a story of Aileen Cust. And I said to my agent at that point, I want to write the story about this. In- Incredible woman who jumped through all sorts of hoops and to follow her dream to become a veterinary surgeon. And my agent said, No, I don't think so. It sounds too quiet. It doesn't sound, no. So I said to her, I really want to do it. (laughs) And so she and I parted ways. And so now I was without an agent. And the the problem there is that one is very limited to the publishers that you can um, approach without an agent because most of the publishers want you to go through an agent. However, the one publishing group, which is Source Books, they're uh, based in Chicago, which had come very close to acquiring the story in the unkmas Valley. Uh, they, it had gone through a number of meetings and an acquisitions meeting. We thought we'd sold it to them, and then they for whatever reason decided against it. I happened to notice that one of the editors there was accepting certain kinds of of stories one of her criteria was remarkable women who have maybe gone under the radar she was accepting for a short time accepting direct submissions from authors so I wrote to her and I said, I've got this manuscript about this woman and you might know my writing because we did kind of get to a point of, of course, she wasn't necessarily the editor that had seen the other book. But um, she said to me, yes, I'll, I'll have a look oh, at it. What a yeah. journey. Yeah. And she is the editor who acquired it. Her name is Erin is McLeary, And she wanted to be a vet when she, she was young. She <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, yes, this is a case It delivered, <laughs> isn't
0: it? It yeah. sounds like having an agent can be a bit of a mixed blessing. Mm. I mean, they are a necessary, I wouldn't say necessary evil, but quite a difficult path because, you know, it's, it's a hurdle through mm. which you have to mm. jump before you get to that. So let's talk about women who fly under the radar. So Aileen Cust, was, Aileen I. Cust, yes. is, uh, was the first vet in England. And it just feels that, that she went under the radar Feels absolutely remarkable that nobody else in England, or Ireland, or Scotland, nobody had picked up the story
1: before. Is that not strange? Well, I'm still expecting to wake up one day and discover that someone else had written about it. I actually couldn't believe it. I, there is a there's a small biography written by Connie Ford, who was a vet. She's dead now, but she uh, she published it in 1990, and it's a very tiny biography, which, which was very helpful for me because the primary research was on the fight that um, Aileen Cust had with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons and Connie Ford had uh, recorded that in minute detail. So Connie's book was, as I say, it's, a, it's non-fiction, it's a biography, a tiny one and that was really wonderful. And there's another book called The Widrington Women and Their Imminent Men by Cecilia Chance, which is the story of the Widringtons who major Widrington and uh, so that's also non-fiction. Yes, exactly. So uh, Cecilia Chance is the great granddaughter of the sister of Dorothy Graham. So there was that connection, but that too was non-fiction. But aside from that, nothing, no,
0: no. Yes, as you say, you know, who want, I mean, she didn't have any children, with no yeah. spoilers here, but she didn't have any children, so nobody is sort of suddenly going to come forward as a descendant. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Anyway, leaving all that aside, yeah. you found this, so you heard about her, you found the story, you found some source material, but she was born in Ireland, she was born in Ireland, she lived in the UK, she went to, or at least lived in England, went to scotland to study the question really is how did you do the research aside from what you knew about cows and dogs and cattle and (laughs) sheep and things
1: from your own childhood how did you do the research first on aileen well i got the books that i could which i I tracked them down and then my friend richard lyons who is a veterinary surgeon he's a recently retired veterinary surgeon who is Irish practiced in England for most of his life and is a member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons so he had access to to quite a bit of information so between the two of us I mean it was really useful to have him in the UK to help me and between the two of us that's essentially how we did it I mean I've been to Ireland, I've been to Scotland, I've, I've been to England. I wrote it during lockdown, so even if I'd wanted to travel I couldn't. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, it's amazing how you can I mean, online you can visit places. The Newton Hall where the Widringtons lived, which is, is a setting that features often in the book, is actually now a wedding venue. You can do a virtual tour of the entire place. So. <laughs> I mean, obviously it looks very different to what it did when the Widringtons lived there, but it gave me a wonderful idea idea Of the setting and the proximity to the beach and the countryside, and so that was really very helpful. Giving away trade secrets, how (laughs) interesting is that? Because
0: I suppose, as a writer, it's your job to embellish those sort of images, so to take you back in time. Yeah, so take us back in time, contextualize her because what year was she born? When was this going on, and what else was going on? Because it was a a dark time for women, was Mm. it not? Yeah,
1: it was the Victorian era. Uh, She was born in 1868. So she was ten when when she left Ireland. So she was born in Ireland to an aristocratic English family. Her father was a land agent. So not terribly beloved by the Irish, obviously. So she, she had her formative years in near Tipperary Town in, the, in Cordon Manor, which is actually still standing as well. You can visit that too. In fact, it's a veterinary family live in the manor at the moment. Isn't that amazing? But So she was raised there uh, with uh, uh, horses, lots of horses. She was the oldest girl of uh, six, seven, I couldn't remember, but the, with, with older brothers. And what happened there was because um, her mother was very conscious of her aristocratic pedigree, and she wanted to raise a young lady. And while they were in Ireland, it worked better for the family, for for Aileen, to be under the tutor that her brothers were being taught, and inadvertently she got an amazing education. Yeah, yeah. and I just just have to draw attention to a dreadful mother, dreadful mother,
0: (laughs) simply because she was so obstructive in mm. Aileen's desires but at the time it just put put us into the context of the time because it was difficult mm. for a woman to do pretty much anything no, other yeah. than embroider yeah. but there was all sorts of suffragette
1: stuff going on yeah. as well yeah so it was at a time when women were starting to go to university I mean in, in Scotland there were some moves in the in medical science but they were essentially abused they were they had mud thrown at them they were you know they were called all sorts of terrible names. And it was just after Florence Nightingale as well. And the interesting thing about Florence Nightingale was that she'd made it almost acceptable for upper-class women to train as nurses nothing else but nurses. So aside from the fact that women, even upper class women, were barely educated beyond, well not into their teens anyway. I mean their education, they would learn learn a couple of languages and then they were taught to embroider and play music and do some art. And they certainly would not have a tertiary education. The first women had force their way into universities but very small numbers I mean the famous Edinburgh Seven who were uh, were women that wanted to become doctors and the most the most progressive thinking was it's okay for women to become doctors if they're only going to look after other women you know Aileen was expected to get married and take care of a household. her mother was against it, her family were against mm. it, the law was against it, mm.
0: and the veterinary colleges, universities themselves, were completely against it, but nothing seemed to deter her. Mm. She was extraordinarily dogmatic (laughs) might be the right word but eventually just to cut to the chase it was her one brother who died who left her the money that enabled her to go and study and she went to study in scotland where she found one very simpatico man the principal of the Mm. college was willing so she studied long and hard and met a lot of challenges in the way that she was treated the way that she was perceived but nonetheless she did her time at the
1: college but she was denied her certificate so, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons decided that that she couldn 't sit the professional exams, so there was no ways that she could essentially practice as a vet, not legally anyway. They prohibited her, and the book explains that she went they went she helped by Principal William Williams. They went this legal route in several occasions, but they would have had to fight the case in London for her to Eventually win the case, and she didn't want to do that because that was where her family were. I mean, that was one of the things that I found remarkable about her was all the way through she despite the way she was treated by her family particularly her mother she tried to protect them she know her mother was the um woman of the bedchamber to queen victoria and was was horrified by the thought that queen victoria might find out that her daughter was doing something as unseemly as wanting to work with beasts (laughs) get an education and work with beasts and so aileen Decided, um, aside from the fact that she actually didn't have enough money to hire lawyers and what have you, that it would be the last co- coffin in the nail if she fought her family in London, where it would, where the case would come to the attention of of people that were on court yeah. and what have you. So she decided not to, and. 22 years later, I mean now we're giving spoilers but 22 years later she was finally allowed to sit her exam but that didn't stop her practicing anyway. It did not stop no. her practicing. No. <laughs> and just what you mentioned Queen Victoria
0: there who although you know, the idea of a woman working with beasts is fairly horrific yeah. Queen Victoria herself had Pomeranians I think and so she became a Pomeranian breeder yes. as well so there's so many little aside details yeah. here. It's an extraordinary story but you mentioned one of the things that you thought was amazing about her was her tenacity to supporting her family, even mm. though they had been absolutely dreadful to her. But what else was it about her that got you? Because, I mean, I think her her, her tenacity just struck me. I thought, how is she
1: doing this? <laughs> what, what was her motivation, do you think? I think that she wanted to live a life of purpose, and the life of purpose for her was working with animals. And, you know, I just think that she she couldn't imagine anything else would have been worthless to her and I also think that there was a part of her and I don't know whether this is because I also have older brothers being raised with brothers and being told that you can't do things that they can do there's there's something definitely in myself and I know that this is not my story it's Aileen kasuri but there's definitely something that says but I can do this and one of the objections that the profession had to having women vets is that they physically could not handle the animals. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous because one man on his own doesn't um, hobble a horse and, and bring it to the ground on his own. He always gets help anyway. And Aileen's response to that was, well, I will find a way. You know, I I will get the grooms to help me. I'll get the stable boys to help me. And she even developed some um, equipment, some devices yeah. to work with with animals. So, yeah. so she, I think she also developed a bit of a thick skin
0: because people were awful to her, not yeah. to mention her fellow students. Yeah. Uh, and the, when she went back to Ireland, where she was able to practice as an assistant, she met with dreadful uh, responses from society and the Catholic Church. The Catholic, so you, yeah. you turned up a huge amount of extra detail, which reflected quite badly, I have to say, on people of the time. But yeah. it's interesting. So, just quickly to get her back to Ireland. And I really definitely won't give this away, but she does work in Ireland and she is an assistant vet. And despite all, she spends some wonderful years there. But you talk about her wanting to have a life of purpose, and my goodness, did she ever, because in the First World War, she sort of signed up, although she wasn't allowed to go and be a vet, she signed up with the YMCA, I think it was, or YWCA, or whatever CA it was, and she went over and she did incredible work with horses and the war, and the statistics that you quote were absolutely Mm. frightening. Just tell us a little bit about the animals' role in the war and her
1: role in looking yeah. after the animals. Well, I mean, that, that was just Phenomenal, really. When when I researched that, I mean, we know the story of War Horse, of course. I mean, that, that came back to me while I was reading that. But the the numbers of horses, I can't remember the numbers offhand many, now.
0: Many, many, many thousands th-
1: from all over the world. You know, from as far as New Zealand and Australia, that were being shipped to Europe and, to and press-ganged, stolen. Ab- absolutely, absolutely incredible. And the conditions that those animals were under. I mean, aside from the brutality of um, of actual war, but of being in conditions where they were the nutrition was bad and the, um, they were standing in in mud for for days upon days um getting foot rot and and then uh, they didn't have helicopters and aeroplanes
0: <laughs> in those days <states, laughs> no. did they so they had to ship all the animals across which must have been even worse for the animals
1: absolutely and i mean the once they were over there just imagining the logistics of horses having to Pull cannons into into war and what have you, and then these bloody battles being fought and horses being rampant around, you know and bringing finding the injured horses and bringing them back to amberville where they where they were taken care of i mean it, I think we've forgotten, and certainly while I was researching this even before the war, just thinking about the enormous role that horses played in everyday life i mean if you consider that every bit of transport essentially was horses and in Ireland, certainly, and at the time, obviously, the sport of horses, the hunting and the racing and what have you, was very big. And one of the things, and I think I say it in the in the book, one of the things that Aileen loved about Ireland was about how much they loved their horses. And you know, it was it was God and horses, and mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily in that order. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> so, yeah.
0: But interesting, you talk about the role that horses played because they were involved in every aspect of Mm. transport and etc. And interesting that towards the end of the book, she finally gets herself a little car or a motor car. And, you know, so she lived through a great deal of times. And eventually, eventually, I can't say that it came right, but eventually she was able to practice. But... What did you learn? I mean, having decided not to be a vet and yeah. become a journalist and said, what did you learn about being a vet? I don't know how difficult it is for women now. It it remains a, a challenge because it is a challenge to be a vet. But what did what did you learn?
1: from her as a woman and her as a vet. From the perspective of her being a vet then, and it was something that when, when I was working with, with Richard, the, the vet, we we spoke about a lot because obviously veterinary practice today versus veterinary practice back in the day is so different, you know, that she was essentially inventing remedies and treatments and what have you and we were, you know, we were at the time when, when Richard and I were working through things we, you know, he would say, well I don't know what they'd use now because back then and we it's um it's vastly different and the other thing is that when aileen started to practice veterinary surgeons mostly took care of big animals and it was mostly horses because of, of the role they played. The idea of pets was still I mean it was that whole era where you mentioned earlier about Queen Victoria and the Pomeranians. There was a big move in in Britain and definitely amongst the aristocracy to be developing breeds and um, people were getting very excited about different breeds and that. But a veterinary practice back then versus a veterinary practice today which you know I mean obviously now Differs whether it's a rural practice and a, or a town practice or whatever, but she was not taking care primarily of dogs and yeah, cats. Yeah. She was and she was riding. When she was in Ireland, they had um, rooms. She and um, William Byrne had rooms um, at his home at Castle Strange, but they were essentially going on their gig or riding their horses to to the animals. They were, you know, the horses were not being loaded up and brought yeah. to them for yeah. for attention or very rarely anywhere. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and you
0: mentioned William Byrne there, who plays a key role in the book. He is Isn't he the lovely? he is the love interest. <laughs> he's um no, he's not a Heathcliff really, because he's too too lovely. Yeah. But it's interesting that he plays poet and a nationalist. Yes, I mean, yes, really he, he, wonderful and man. A bit, yeah. But let's not give too much okay. more away. Yeah. But interesting about people not having so many pets then, so weren't vets weren't looking after pets. But it, there's a rather damning statement when I think a London vet suggests to her that as a vet, as a woman vet, she might perhaps look after cage birds. But I don't know where you got that little nugget of information. But the other thing about your book that fascinated me was the, the melding, if you like, of, of fact and imagination. So you had your string of, fa- of facts to which you were then able to sort of layer on your imagination. Was, there, was that a great responsibility of feeling, dare I, should I, can I, oh, yes,
1: I will? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was just the best part. You know, you know, the, the thing was that when I discovered alien cast and I started to research her I honestly thought but this the story is written itself it's honestly it's I it, couldn't make it up it, no it was just so remarkable and the, obviously the friendships and the relationships i mean when i discovered that her closest friend was Dorothy Woodrington, who became Dorothy Grey, who was the first wife of Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, who led Britain into the into the First World War. I mean, it's just incredible. And the the fact that when she had a brief period when she went to practice as a as a nurse, because her mother said that would be acceptable, because of Florence Nightingale, was the time. When the man who became known as Jack the Ripper was murdering people in that part of London, I mean all these things that um, I worked out the i mean that there was no mention in any of my research material about um, Jack the Ripper, but I worked out the timing and I thought, well, this might have been a, a great a great story about about her giving up that or being able to give it up. Um, I loved writing this book nancy i didn 't feel I feel the responsibility, but i I think she was such a remarkable woman that there was nothing about her story that made me feel I might be um, overstepping the mark in a sense. I just thought she was just an incredible woman. The one thing we were talking about her characteristics a bit earlier, and the one thing that I think... Must have been part of her. And in fact, I read something, that was uh, that I, um, an interview uh, in late in life, which Connie did with someone who'd studied with her, which said the one thing that got her through, definitely while she was training, was her sense of humor. Mm. That she chose her battles really well. She didn't go out there uh, ready to do battle with anyone who put her down in and that. And, and I think, personally, that that was also because of having having grown up with a lot of boys, you know, choose your battles. Some of them are not worth fighting. There are those scenes early on when she was at, um, at Vet- Veterinary College in Edinburgh where her fellow students, obviously all male, play dreadful pranks on her. Yes. But she... <laughs> she she doesn't she doesn't rise to them she just actually gives as good yeah. as she gets. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's an ex- yeah. extraordinary woman, motivated, tenacious yeah. and loving and and very very appealing and very yeah. good at what she did. Seems that she was uh, yeah. she was uh, I think in Ireland they started to refer to vets as your honour your Honor. <laughs> and eventually they called her your honour yes. I think she'd arrived at yes. that point it's a lovely
1: lovely book better than getting certification from the from the professional <laughs> body <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: so what she's or what this book has also done for you it's given you a bit of a taste for historical women mm-hmm. so might you go Scratching in the annals
1: uh, and the archives again, do you think? And have you done already? Yes. Yeah. Well, I- in fact, I um, I didn't st- think of writing historical fiction in li- initially, but when I came across Aileen, I t- just honestly, I just couldn't not do it. But she found you. I f- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she was channeling.
0: You were channeling.
1: Uh, yes, I'm going. I have already uh, worked through um, uh, one manuscript. Historical fiction, another extraordinary woman who has uh, gone under the radar. Beyond that, I'm not sure yet, but I think so. I think for a while, because honestly, I've absolutely loved it. And I think, I think part of what has been an unexpected pleasure for me is that, you know, the journalism, the research that comes with journalism, and that factual stuff, it melds nicely with having to do the research and stick to the facts where they're publicly known, and then have the freedom and the playfulness and the joy of, of creating the, the fiction. So, yeah, for me, it, it, it feels like it really works for me. And a bit like Aileen kind of got an inadverted um, education because she went to the schoolroom with her brothers, um, I, I feel like I've inadvertently found my spot Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you've cemented yourself as a writer, good and proper, which means that there's no chance of you becoming a vet at this late stage. <laughs> No, I don't think so.
1: <laughs> I don't think so, no.
0: Penny, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I wish you every success. I know that it's uh, the book at present is on the water, so it's not yet arrived in South Africa. And we look forward to it. And clearly, you have really enjoyed writing this one. I loved it.
1: Thank you so much, Nancy. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>